our text tonight is Zechariah chapter 4 and once again Revelation 11. Zechariah 4. Now we read in our study of the book of Revelation, we often begin our scripture reading with reading something out of the Old Testament that where the text in the book of Revelation that we're studying is rooted. You remember we said that the figures of speech and the imagery of the book of Revelation is by and large, somebody tell the uh, fields, by the way, we're not having communicants class. And uh, so uh, that, that the figures of speech in the book of Revelation are usually taken from something in the Old Testament. So it's always good to uh, read the Old Testament first. Zechariah chapter 4 and then Revelation 11. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is wakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, the other on the left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, no, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, <coughs> but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, Revelation 11. Last week we looked mostly at the first two verses. Now we'll look at the rest today. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And they will send gifts to one another because these, these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, 
And there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, remember how we've been dividing the book of uh, Revelation. In the first chapter, you have the introductory comments. Uh, the principles of interpretation are set forth there. The uh, purpose of the book, the main character of the book. Then in chapters 2 and 3, you have the uh, churches to whom this book of Revelation uh, is addressed, uh, mentioned in a series of seven letters. And then beginning with chapter 4 and going through chapter 11, we have a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And then with chapter 12, on toward the end of the book, we have a prophecy of the fall of Rome. Now the purpose, you remember, uh, for the first century hearers is to give them encouragement and to say the two great enemies of the church in the first century have no future. And any, anybody else that treats the church like these two parties have treated the church will suffer the same doom. And the two great enemies of the church of the first century were apostate Judaism represented in Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. And so now we come to the end of that section in chapter 11. By the way, I need to say something real quick. Last week during the discussion, Mr. Hodges is correct. I wasn't thinking uh, you remember our little question and answer deal about uh, Luke 21 being an Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 being something? Well, he's right, and I was wrong. Neither one of them had to do the Sermon on the Mount, so I give you my whatever. Okay. I really knew it in my heart, though. <laughs> okay. All right, so last week we looked at the first two verses. And you remember the first two verses had to do with the measuring of this temple, which indicates, since there's nothing about the fall of the temple in, in Revelation 11, that the temple hadn't fallen yet, and it fell in, in 70 A.D. And so uh, what, what is the point of those two verses? Let me just quickly summarize. Literal Jerusalem will be destroyed, but spiritual Jerusalem would be delivered. The holy city of Jerusalem, everything outside the measured temple which included apostate Judaism at that point, will be destroyed by God's judgment in 70 A.D. Only that which is measure, measured, just like in an early chapter, only that which is sealed will survive. And so it's talking about the sealing and the protection of the true church of God, those who profess faith in Christ and their children, of which there were many people in Jerusalem, uh, many Christians in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that they're the only ones that will be protected when God's judgment falls, the whole city will burn. Everything outside the sanctuary, everything outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ 
will be destroyed. And as we said so many times, we don't have any record in any historical document of any Christians dying in the fall of Jerusalem. Well, we ended last week by beginning to talk about these two witnesses. Now, remember, the first verse of the first chapter tells us uh, in the word of the New American Standard, communicating, and the word in the King James Version signified that the Greek word means to write in figures of speech and to write in symbols. And remember, the book of Revelation is entirely true. Every word is true, but it's not literally true. It's figuratively true. That is, there are a bunch of figures of speech that we have to figure out what they mean and how to interpret them. And John was good enough to use figures of speech, by and large, that are explained earlier somewhere in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. So now we come to two witnesses. A lot of controversy about who these two witnesses are. Remember, we're not going to take them literally. They, they represent something. You have some people who believe that they're two Jewish preachers of the first century. You have other people who believe that it's going to be the uh, resurrection or the reappearance of Elijah and Moses sometime in connection with the tribulation or the second coming of Christ. But I don't buy either one of those. Let me try to present again the case for who these two witnesses are. Notice what it says. It says in verse 3, God speaks, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, that is the three and a half years, the 42 months, the broken seven, that period of time in which the holy city was going to be destroyed. That's when they give their testimony. And remember, it's three and a half years, 42 months, to symbolize the fact it's not seven years, it's not a long period of time, as the number seven would imply, but an abbreviated period of time. This persecution is not going to last forever, but it's during that time that these two witnesses are going to be given God's authority to prophesy. They're going to be dressed in sackcloth, the last part of verse 3, and they are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. So there's a direct reference to Zechariah 4 that we just read a while ago, which talks about this golden lampstand, which in the first chapter of Revelation is symbolic of the church. You remember, let's go back to Revelation 1, because it's important to bear that, bear that out. 20, verse 20, And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw, my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the angels or preachers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. So in Zechariah 4, you have this gorgeous golden lampstand. No matter how ornate it is, if, it doesn't, if it's not connected to a source of oil, it's not going to be of any use. It's not going to give any light whatsoever. But in Zechariah's picture, this lampstand is connected to uh, olive trees. So that it's not just a, a container with oil in it, but there's this never-ending source of oil for this lampstand to give light in the house. And you see the great point here as he brings it up. These two witnesses represent this golden lampstand, this faithful church that has a constant supply of oil from the Holy Spirit. Not by, my, not by strength or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how they're going to accomplish anything they're going to accomplish. It's not because of their intelligence. It's not because of their eloquence. It is because of the power of the Holy Spirit empowering these two witnesses to give faithful testimony to Almighty God. Now, 
We saw last week two witnesses play a very important role in both Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death, but shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So in a court of law, in order for somebody to be convicted of a crime, there had to be two witnesses, not one, there had to be two witnesses that could corroborate each other's testimony. Then you remember when in Matthew 18, when you have Jesus setting forth the uh, system of church discipline, it says if somebody sins, you go to them. If you can't win them by yourself, then you take two or three witnesses with you to establish their guilt. And if that doesn't work, you take them to the session. And then in Luke 10, 1, it says that when, Lord, when the Lord sent out 70 preachers, he sent them out two by two. So this idea of two witnesses plays an important role in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then you remember in uh, the second and the third chapters of the seven churches, only two uh, did the Lord Jesus Christ have no complaint against. Only two were faithful enough that Jesus did not charge them with any crime, and those were Smyrna and Philadelphia. So who I think the, the uh, two witnesses refer to is not two Jewish people in the first century. It's not a revival of uh, Elijah and Moses. It simply means the faithful church. The two witnesses in, in sackcloth. The faithful church in sackcloth testifying to the guilt of Jerusalem. Witnesses in the Bible, that very word, had a little different nuance than it has today. We, we use the word witness to mean somebody who goes out and shares the gospel, which is okay. But in the Bible, the word witness had the nuance of testifying to the guilt of somebody, confirming the guilt of somebody. There had to be two witnesses to confirm the guilt of a criminal. And so you have these witnesses of the Lord, the faithful church, like Smyrna and Philadelphia, the faithful church of God still standing true in the midst of the of the uh, burning up of the holy city of Jerusalem by the Roman armies, still being faithful, but the primary element of their uh, gospel was judgment. They were dressed in sackcloth. And uh, you remember Jeremiah pointed out that in eras like the days in which he lived, when preaching takes place, the primary emphasis must be on judgment before restoration, that there must be the judgment of God to come and clear the ground in order for things to be restored. So here you have the faithful church of God sufficiently condemning the apostasy of Judaism, standing firm in the midst of a culture that's falling apart, preaching judgment. Now notice their authority. They're under divine commission, verse, verse 3. Their power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And, as, and their power is greater than that of Elijah and Moses. You notice both Elijah and Moses are alluded to. It says um, in verse... Um, hmm. Too much... It talks about the witnesses being able to shut up the verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying, just like Elijah did once. They can do a lot. 
And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood like Moses did once. But they can smite the earth with every plague, any any plague, any time they want. Now the point is, here's powerful imagery that says that these men spoke the invincible, irresistible word of Almighty God. Their testimony was faithful. It could not be effectively resisted. They were on an assignment from God. And they, if anybody tries to harm a head on their heads before their mission is finished, they must be killed. That these men cannot be resisted. Regardless of the persecution of Rome or the persecution of apostate Judaism, they were thoroughly victorious and effective. And as we said last week, the book of Acts records how tens and tens of thousands of people were converted to Christ in Jerusalem through these faithful Christians before 70 A.D. It's worth going through Acts 2 or Acts 4 or Acts 5 or Acts 51 and just noticing the thousands of people that were genuinely converted to the Lord Jesus Christ through the invincible preaching of these men whose word was even more powerful than that of Elijah and Moses. But they died. It says in verse 5, And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. The uh, imagery of fire as the word of God is a common one in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Jeremiah. On at least two occasions, Jeremiah refers to the word of God as fire. Is not my, the Lord says through Jeremiah, is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that smashes the rod to pieces. So nobody could harm a hair on these, the faithful church's head as long as they were still involved in the mission that God sent them to perform. Anybody that tried to touch them before their time was up and before they finished their mission would themselves uh, be persecuted and would be killed. Uh, their power could not be resisted. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, it's only after their work is done. It's only after they finished. It's no interruption. But when they finished their preaching and their testifying and their witness bearing against apostate Jerusalem, then, and only then, and not before then, the beast that comes out up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So they preach, and they preach effectively throughout this three-and-a-half-year period. Even though the city is burning down, they're able to lead many, many people to Christ, even though they're being persecuted themselves by the Jews during that p- period of time. They're still being faithful unto death. And they were not allowed to die until their preaching work was finished. Hingstenberg, the great German commentator on Revelation, says this, When God has no further need for their service, when their death can produce more fruit than their life, then they will die, but not before. And the same thing of you and me. Someday we're going to die, but not until the work God has given us is finished, And not until we can accomplish more by our death than we could by our life. And they were killed by a beast. Now, in the book of Revelation, as well as in Daniel, beasts are figures of anti-Christian states and cultures in revolt against Almighty God. We'll come back to these beasts later on. We're going to see them again in the book of Revelation. But understand before we go any farther, 
that faithful witnesses are always at war with the beasts of this world. Don't think of peaceful coexistence. Don't think of bargaining and negotiations. Don't think of winning the favor of beasts. You can't win the favor of beasts. That beasts and these two witnesses, the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be at war throughout the history of the world. Now notice where they died. Verse 7, And when they finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called, or, or uh, figuratively called, Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So this city where they were killed, we've already identified up there in verse 2. It's where the temple is located. It's the holy city. Uh, figuratively speaking, because of its sin and, and immorality and perversion and idolatry and apostasy, uh, it is identified as Sodom and Egypt because it oppressed the true people of God. Those are, those are figurative names. Literally, it's the place where Jesus was crucified. And, of course, Jesus was crucified right outside Jerusalem. So these two witnesses, as it were, were faithful throughout the faithful church, uh, bore witness convicting apostate Judaism of her sins until their work had finished. And then this terrible beast rises up, and we're going to see it was Rome, and starts killing off the faithful church. And they begin in this town called Sodom and Egypt, which is really the place where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was crucified. That is in Jerusalem of the first century. So here's another one of those reasons why we believe that this section has to do with prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But it doesn't, it's not limited to that particular point because obviously Acts 1.8 says that Christ has his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. So the witness bearing, the effective witness bearing of the Lord Jesus Christ begins in Jerusalem then the faithful witnesses are killed, and then as we're going to see, they're resurrected, and the gospel continues to be preached in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth to this very day. And notice what the rebels do with their dead, with their corpses. Verse 9, and those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another, like we said last week, anti-Christmas, like Antichrist, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So here it says that they are so glad that the faithful church has died, as it were, that they're they're celebrating its demise. They're treating the, the, the corpses of these faithful Christians with indignity. They have triumphant celebrations, all of which are short-lived. They uh, uh, give each other presents. They have a rip-roaring good time celebrating the fact, finally, these two witnesses are out of the way. Finally, we were able to persecute and destroy and kill and feed to the lions and burn at the stake and all the rest. Uh, 
the faithful church in the first, second, third, etc. centuries. And now we're free from them. We didn't like them anyway because their preaching tormented us. That's the kind of preachers we need today that will torment the beasts. But the celebration of the enemies of the gospel is short-lived. It's only three and a half days. They're only dead three and a half days. Now remember, all these are figurative. For three and a half years, there's going to be tremendous uh, burning of Jerusalem. That is, not forever, but for a significant portion of time. But the, 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 the faithful church is only, only going to be off the scene for just three and a half days. That is for an extremely short period of time in the overall scheme of things. And then something's going to happen to it. What's going to happen to it? It's going to be erased from the dead. Verse 11. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into these two witnesses into the faithful church that had been persecuted and killed. And then these two witnesses stood on their feet. They were raised from the dead, as it were. And great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. So now what's happening? I know I'm being repetitious, but get the picture. Jerusalem is being destroyed. It's prophesied as being destroyed. The only people survives the measured temple. There's two witnesses. They represent the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing testimony to Christ and to Israel's sin. Even in the midst of the three and a half years of the burning of the holy city, they're faithful. Then when their job is done, this beast, the Roman Empire, comes and destroys them. And they're killed. But they're only dead for three and a half days. A rather insignificant period of time. And then they're raised from the dead again. The breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet. And when that happened, great fear fell upon all those that were beholding him, uh, them again. Now what is the picture? All right, the resurrection, it's not, a, it's not a literal thing. It's figurative, it's spiritual, it signifies an awakening, a reviving of the faithful testimony-bearing work of the church that faded off the scenes for a while under persecution, but which could not be kept down. The faithful church arises, as it were, and begins preaching again in a way that now is going to affect the whole world. Now, this idea of a resurrection being symbolic, of being figurative and not spiritual, I mean, you've read about it before. I'm not making anything up. Turn to Ezekiel 37. You know the great story of this resurrection, uh, a, a figure of speech. Ezekiel 37, I think it's talking about a very similar thing. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds of O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Sounds literal, doesn't it, so far? Next verse says it's not. And I'll put my spirit within you, and you'll come to life. And I'll place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So here God says, Ezekiel, I got a job for you. I want, to raise this, I want you to raise this valley of dead bones to life. Who's the dead bones? Judged, dead, condemned, apostate Israel. And he said, I want you to preach to these bones till they come alive. So they come alive. And God, in, God causes them to experience this great awakening, this great resurrection. And then he says to them, I'm going to put you in your own land, and I'm going to cause my spirit to come within you. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's Ezekiel 36. That's where God promised to give his spirit in Christ to those who belong to him, the prophecy of the new covenant. So here this isn't a literal resurrection. It, it's a, it is a picture of what God's going to do to his faithful people. They, they suffer, they die, they're raised from the dead, and the Spirit of God is put within them. Now, that's not exactly what Revelation 11 is talking about, but I use that to let you see that the Bible does speak of resurrections in a, a non-literal spiritual sense. And so we go back to Revelation 11, and we see that these witnesses, after having been put down, to sep- uh, experiencing a, a temporary setback, are raised to great power and authority and begin their preaching again. And things start to happen. Listen to Matthew 24, 31. Now remember, Matthew 24 is the first 36 verses about the fall of Jerusalem. And it says, And the Lord will send forth his messengers with a great trumpet, and they will, together, they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to, to another. Now, I'm not going to take the time to exegete that. There's some great commentaries on Matthew 24. But I want you to see that in connection with the des- desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the, of the temple and the apostasy of the people and all the other t- turbulences of that era, there's nevertheless going to be the beginning of a global evangelization 
a global evangelization in which God will cause his people, his messengers, to blast the trumpet of the gospel and to gather together, which two words are a, uh, in, in Greek, are one word, which is the word, one of the words for church in the New Testament, will gather together his elect people from all over the earth. So now I think that's what Revelation 11 is talking about. It's talking about these witnesses have to, have to suffer at the hands of the beast, not long. God's going to revive them again, and it's going to begin the global evangelization of the world. And I told you last week that by the end of the first century, there were over a million Christians in the Roman Empire. And the kingdom of Christ has continued to grow ever since. To now, it's the biggest religion on the face of this earth. Here's some other verses. Matthew 24, 8. In the fall of Jerusalem. It talks about uh, wars, rumors of wars, all these things having to do with the de- demolition of the temple. It says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They don't have anything to do with the end of time. They don't have anything to do with the second coming of Christ. This isn't the, the fall of Jerusalem is not the beginning of death for the world. The fall of Jerusalem is the beginning of birth pangs. When do birth pangs take place? The beginning or the end of life? The beginning. And so here with the resurrection of these two witnesses, the faithful church, after having been persecuted so long, you see the beginning of birth pains that's going to lead to the spread of the gospel throughout all the world. Uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. The end's not going to come until the gospel has gotten to all the nations of the world. So I think when you put all these verses together, what this resurrection of these two witnesses is, is simply after having been persecuted, the world celebrated its death as they were fed to lions and all those various things. God's breath comes back into them. They stand on their feet and they were more, are more powerful now than they ever were before in the preaching of the gospel that led to the, eventually to the conversion of the world. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Now, remember what uh, God told John over here in Revelation 4 when he began the whole thing? He says, after these things, in verse 1 of chapter 4, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. You remember what he was saying is, John, I want you to look at things, not from your perspective on the Isle of, uh, your exiled position on the Isle of Patmos. I want you to come up here and look at things from the vantage point of my sovereignty. And you will see that everything is under control. And now he says a very similar thing here to these witnesses. And he's not talking about the second coming. He's simply saying to them, I want you to come up here again. I want you to find security in my sovereignty. You understand why you were fed to lions? Do you understand why whole churches were fed to the lions or burned at the stake or used as torches in Caesar's gardens? You may not understand, but don't worry, everything's under control. And I want you to come up here where I am in all my glory, the cloud, the cloud of God's glory. I want you to come up here and look at things and find security in my sovereignty. Verse 13. And in that hour. There was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
Now, what do you have here? What you have here is God's wrath uh, in total victory over all the enemies of the people of God. This is a picture of the desolation, the complete devastation of Jerusalem, including all future enemies of the church. You now, now we're out of the realm of three and a half days, broken seven, three and a half years. Now we have some more significant numbers here. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. Earthquakes are symbolic of, of great social, civil turbulence on earth. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth, not a ninth, not an eighth, not three and a half, but a tenth of the city fell and 7,000, not 8,000, not 9,000, not 6,000, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, if it's literal, it's saying that this destruction resulted in a whopping 10% of the city. That's not very impressive. 7,000 people were killed. Okay, that's not that many in the overall scheme of things. But it's not literal. Ten is a significant number in the book of Revelation. Ten is the number of completion. Seven is another important number in the book of Revelation. Seven is the number of perfection. The number of completion. So in, when it uses words like seven and words like ten, saying that well, there was this great civil upheaval, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. The point here is the opposition has collapsed. The oppressors of God's church has collapsed. Jerusalem has fallen. That, that's, that's the prophecy. Jerusalem falls. When Jerusalem falls, there's no more opposition from apostate Judaism to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostate Judaistic opposition has collapsed. The oppression of the Jews, of, of Christians, has been eliminated in a great social and political and spiritual upheaval. Jesus said the likes of which the world has never experienced before or after in 70 A.D. And the point is that the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of Christ is greater than the power of all our enemies and will overcome them all, whether they're apostate Jews of the first century, whether they're the tyrants of the Roman Empire, whoever they are in culture, the Word of God and the Spirit of Christ are greater than all the powers our enemies can put together and will someday overcome them all. Let me read to you a great prophecy in Isaiah 41 about the church. You remember in the Old Testament, Israel... Uh, and the New Testament takes these prophecies and applies them to the church and calls the church the new Israel of God. But let me read you a prophecy about the new Israel of God in verse 15 of Isaiah 41. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. And you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. And you will make the hills like chaff. And you will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. 
So the enemies of the gospel are only able to kill these two faithful witnesses for three and a half days. And God says, I want to raise you from the dead, make you a sharp threshing instrument that is so big and so powerful that it's going to thresh and pulverize mountains and make mountains like chaff, all of your enemies, and the storm will scatter them. And you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So here you have this Revelation 11 ending in triumph of the preached word. And then the 11th chapter ends as the whole section began. You remember the whole section began in Revelation 4 and 5 with hymns singing God's praises. And now it concludes with hymns singing God's praises. And they're all interrelated. Verse 17, we give thee thanks, O Lord God. Uh, No, excuse me. Verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in the heavens saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Notice, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Here is a hymn to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose reign had already begun. And began with his resurrection. First Peter three thirty-two. It says, Since Christ's resurrection, he has been, quote, at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So here is a great hymn of praise to the fact that you don't have to wait till the end of the world for Jesus to reign. That Jesus isn't going to reign just for a thousand years at the end of the world. That the kingdom of this world has already become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. That with his resurrection, he's already begun to reign. And what will be true at the end of the world is already true at the beginning of this whole Christian era. The Bible says in Isaiah 9 that of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Just Just as there's no end to his government, there's no end to the increase of his government. History is the story of how Christ's government over his enemies continues to increase and advance. But it began at the cross where he secured uh, victory for us and his ascension where he went to God's right hand. We are called, therefore, as faithful witnesses to proclaim this point. The beginning was pregnant with the end. The beginning was pregnant with the end. What will be true 2,000 years ago, uh, what will be true in the future at the end of time is true now and was true 2,000 years ago. Jesus reigns. Even in the midst of all this persecution, the three and a half days of death of the faithful church, Jesus still reigns. And even on this side of the battle, we can be certain that victory is ours as the faithful church regardless of the size or schemes of the opposition. We fight and endure persecution from the vantage point of Christ's total reign over every area of life. Then we come to verse 16 and following. And the 24 elders, that's representatives of the church, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God and saying, We give thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who art and who wast. Because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. 
And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants and prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So here in the previous hymn, we have a hymn of praise to Christ's total reign. Now in this hymn, we have a hymn of praise to Christ's total victory. It has already begun as well. In other words, that's a constant emphasis throughout the book of Revelation. We see it chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 19, and on and on. That at the end, there's going to be the great consummation of the victory over all enemies that, be, that began 2,000 years ago with his resurrection and advances progressively and gradually until it's finished and perfected at the very end of time. Now, what I just told you is important to bear in mind. The reign of Christ began 2,000 years ago with his victory over our enemies. That reign and that victory will continue to advance and increase and spread and make progress until it is perfected and consummated and finished at the second coming of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way to read history. The seed of the kingdom in Jesus' parables was planted 2,000 years ago. The seed's going to be harvested at the end of time. In between, there is the growth of the seed. And so when we think about the relationship of the present and the future and the past, that's the way to look at it. In the past, 2,000 years ago, Jesus won total victory and began the establishment of his total reign. That reign continues to advance until someday it is perfected and finished. And then notice the last great hymn, verse 19, or the last great statement. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now see that in the light of everything that we've looked at so far. The literal temple is now closed. Everything it represented in Jesus' time is gone. It can be, nor will it ever be, of benefit to you again. There'll never be another literal kingdom built, a literal uh, temple. The literal temple, the, the end of the story is, the picture is from where we are, the literal temple's destroyed, and now we have the opening of this true temple of God that stands open with the ark, symbolizing all the rich blessings, all the rich realities that God's covenant promised his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all there. It's not closed. It's not finished. Everything that God promised his people is certain to be fulfilled in their lives. The earthly temple is closed and destroyed. The heavenly temple is opened, and it represents the reality of God's faithfulness to all of his promises. And so what's the point of this whole Revelation 11? The triumphant rule of Christ and his saints has begun. You don't have to wait till the second coming. You don't have to wait till some future date. Christ has already begun to reign. We have already begun to reign in him. Nothing's going to stop the advance of the kingdom which is going to grow and spread through the powerful preaching of the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ until all of God's enemies have been destroyed 
and all of God's promises have come true. One last verse. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Twenty-three. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then, at his coming, comes the end of the world. When he, that is Christ, delivers up the perfected kingdom to the God and Father, when he has, or more literally in Greek, after he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So when is Christ's second coming going to take place? At the end of the world. What's going to happen at the end of the world? He's going to deliver a perfected kingdom to God the Father. And when is the end of the world going to come? After he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So it doesn't say that there's going to be opposing rule and authority and power until Jesus comes, and then it's only going to be after he comes that he abolishes this rebel power. It says the exact opposite. It says that Jesus Christ, from the right hand of God, is going to continue to put his enemies under his feet through the faithful preaching of the church, and then after or when he has abolished through the preaching of the word of God, all rule and all authority and all power, then the end of the world will come. He'll come back and he'll deliver the kingdom, the perfected kingdom to God the Father. That's the kind of future view you want to face life with. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the way this 11th chapter stirs our and feeds our hope and our confidence in the future, and our confidence in your faithfulness. We thank you for the way this fans our confidence in the power of the preaching of the Word of God with the Holy Spirit, that it cannot be resisted, it cannot be matched, until you have used it to put down all of your enemies and rescued your people. We do thank you that the reign of Christ has already begun. The victory of Christ has already begun. We thank you that nothing can stop its advance, and we look forward to that day when we shall participate in its consummation. Until then, help us, O Lord, to be faithful witnesses, regardless of what may happen to us. For Jesus' sake, amen.